Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This, to me, is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to Jenna Ellis in the morning. A lot of things going on out of Washington. Uh, The main thing, of course, yesterday was that Attorney General Merrick Garland did appoint a special counsel in the ongoing probe of President uh, Joe Biden and these secret trove of documents that were found not only at his think tank at UPenn uh, University there in Pennsylvania, but also now in the garage of his personal residence in Delaware. So going to get to all of that and more with my first guest, uh, Representative Claudia Tenney, who is one of the great conservatives in Congress. So, uh, Congresswoman Tenney, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you. It's an honor to be on. I've, of course, been watching you for years, and you do a wonderful job. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for that. That means so much to me. And, uh, you know, with all of the wonderful representatives like you in uh, Congress, I'm so thrilled to be able to champion and support all of you as much as I can. And the big news for you uh, with the new GOP majority is that you are the co-chair of the Election Integrity Caucus. That will be uh, one of your primary focuses every day. So I want to start there because um, a lot of the listeners who call into this show on a daily basis ask me about election integrity? Why hasn't Congress looked into this? So what is your plan for the caucus and what do you hope to accomplish? Well, obviously, it's a hugely important issue to me. I won in a very narrow race in 2020. I spent 100 days in court before my election was finally decided. And I actually didn't get sworn in until February 11th. I was the last House representative to get uh, sworn in because of this arduous battle in court during the pandemic election, counting ballots, dealing with ballot harvesting, all the issues that New York has. I'm from upstate New York. Uh, And then as a result of that, I started the Election Integrity Caucus because we need to focus on this as Republicans. And I think it's important for viewers to know our mission is to set the record straight, to talk about where we can do uh, find reforms in election integrity, come up with model legislation, work with partners in government, work with uh, hopefully uh, others who care about election integrity. To me, there's nothing more important, especially in light of what's been happening with the erosion of our election integrity and a lot of it coming from the Democratic side, uh, you know, the re- repeated vote harvesting, uh, the irregularities that we're seeing in elections, the changing of laws banning voter ID, for example, which uh, just happened out in Michigan and places like that. You know, this is an 89 percent winner now. Eighty nine percent of people polled across all demographics want to see a photo ID and some kind of valid ID proving that you are, number one, a citizen. Number two, you live where you say you live and you're voting in the right jurisdiction. People are starting to recognize that it does matter where you vote. And I I say this because it's so important. As Republicans, we value and we take our oath of office seriously. And our Constitution is about self-governance. That is the quintessential issue, uh, freedom and self-governance. And that's why it is so important that we as Americans and everyone understand how important it is that each citizen should vote. And I say citizen because it used to be 
one man, one vote, one person, one vote. But now with the Democrats eroding our right to vote, it's, you know, one citizen, one vote. And another thing is you always hear the Democrats, and this is, you know, for your listeners, always saying, oh, well, the Republicans are trying to suppress the vote. And Joe Biden said the reforms in Georgia were Jim Crow. Absolutely not. We actually had record turnout in Georgia. And when people feel confidence in their elections and their vote matters, they tend to vote in larger numbers. And the good news is Republicans tend to vote more. So why would we want to suppress the vote? And so I say this, this is, you know, the best way that I can explain how sacred our right is. We just had uh, someone that won a, a ton of money with the Mega Millions. Now, if you won the Mega Millions, would you just put that in a Dropbox, or would you want to make sure that you had a lawyer and an accountant and that you knew when you went to turn your ticket in and to sign on the back of it that it was your signature and you were the one receiving uh, this, this money? This is how important the right to vote is when you're talking about freedom, our future, our grandchildren, our children, and our way of life to stop people who are communist authoritarians who are constantly trying to undermine the sacredness of our right to vote. And most people would tell you they would not put their Mega Millions winning ticket in a drop box and hope that someone calls them. So my mission is to get every citizen to vote in every election. It's an altruistic ideal, but also to ensure that citizens start realizing that their right to vote is as sacred as winning the Mega Millions. Yeah, well said. And I'm talking with a Congresswoman Claudia Tenney out of New York, uh, the New York 24th. And yes, there are still great Republican champions out of the state of New York and even California. So all hope is not lost. And uh, Congresswoman Tenney, how you describe election integrity and common sense measures, I think, resonates with uh, every American who truly understands the sacredness of our vote. And this talking point that the Republicans somehow want to suppress the vote or we're for all of these restrictions or uh, foreclosing uh, the franchise and things like this are, are just trash talking points. Because when you look at people who uh, may not be eligible to vote, or they are voting in a manner that is not allowed by state law, or they are a citizen of another state voting um, in a different state, for example, that vote would be illegal. And so it's all about making sure that everyone who is eligible to vote can and does vote, but that people who aren't allowed to vote under our system don't either. And so it's to make sure that we are um, suppressing the vote in terms of illegal votes, and that should be something that everyone wants. Uh, So in terms of of this caucus, um, do you expect that a select committee or any other committees uh, may be formed in terms of um, investigating anything that happened in prior elections? I know a lot of people are still very concerned about the 2020 election, or is this more forward-looking and you're looking at uh, helping the states put in good uh, measures in, and just and common sense things like voter ID and administering their elections properly? Well, first of all, we uh, formed this caucus in 2021, so we've been at it uh, full speed ahead. We've had all kinds of interesting people come and speak at our, at our caucus, to the, to the various members of Congress. We have almost 80 members now. We're hoping to get a whole bunch of new freshman members that are interested. We want to look at every aspect. It, it says that we don't want to look back on the 2020 election. We want to make sure that whatever we do, we look forward and make sure the mistakes of the 2020 election don't happen again and that we don't allow the Democrats to take advantage like they did in that election. Look, they threw everything that they possibly could at this, that election, whether it was you know, covering up uh, the Hunter Biden's laptop, uh, colluding with the big tech companies and uh, colluding with 
Twitter to suppress that vote. I mean, people need to know the 2020 election was basically decided in three swing states by 42,000 votes. So, yeah, vote harvesting, uh, interfering by using big tech to censor uh, conservatives, to censor anything that was negative on Joe Biden. So many of things, these things have shown that they could impact the election because it was so close. Now we have this you know, revelation on Joe Biden's classified documents. All this stuff has to come out in the new uh, Republican, uh, the new Republican majority with our oversight. Though we have a narrow majority, we need to stick together and talk about election integrity because we will not win any more elections. We won't win. We should have won bigger in 2022. We will not win until in 2024 until we address the facts. One of the things we do is put out model legislation. One of the great things about doing that is we got great governors out there like Ron DeSantis of Florida, who immediately implemented many of the reforms that we suggested and even went further. And look at how well it turned out. Huge turnout in Florida, the third largest state in our nation, and they had their election results done by 10 o'clock at night. Uh, Unlike California and New York, where these, these results lagged on because of poor systems, uh, you know, dilution of what of what uh, the role of the boards of elections are, undermining the boards of elections, creating chaos, all those things that they were doing in these elections. So all these things all have to be part of our message to get out and change the laws. But let's be honest, there are states where we can't change the law, like New York. They're going to implement reforms that are going to be terrible for elections. Michigan banned voter ID. Absurd notion. You know, I can't believe they were able to manipulate the public enough to vote for that in a referendum. That's because the voters were educated. That's a failure on the part of the Republicans to not get their voters to understand how important this is. And that's our mission. Part of our mission is to not just do model legislation, but is to inform voters to understand that this is not some conspiracy theory. Elections matter. Uh, we need to get out and understand the facts, though. Democrats are very good at going out and actually collecting ballots. We are very good at going out and winning over voters with policy. Unfortunately, ballot collection often ends up with early voting, uh, voting that uh, is vote harvesting, and by Election Day, we've already lost the race because we're too busy out there trying to win on policy. The Democrats have figured out and always seem to figure out how to win on process. And states where we cannot get the laws changed. We need to keep up with the Democrats. We have to encourage early voting. We have to get out there and do the vote harvesting. We have to use every legal means we can to make sure that we get our ballots in the door. You know, let's just give you a great example. Most people would tell you they wouldn't vote for a John Fetterman for Senate, that he wasn't capable of doing the job because of some, you know, health issues that he had, which is unfortunate, but it's the truth. But people that voted for him probably don't even know who they were voting for. They were willing to hand their ballot over to somebody who was in the business of vote collection, not someone who and said, oh, look, you know, John Fetterman's going to take care of you. And they're like, oh, who's John Fetterman? I'm too busy watching Netflix or whatever. And those ballots were collected en masse. And most of those people aren't engaged in the system. And the less number of people that are engaged in this self-governance, the, less, the, the, the worst kinds of results we're going to get. A Joe Biden, a Fetterman people that were unpalatable, and people said, how did this guy win? It's because we need to focus on those issues as well. We can't afford another election where, for example, we lose the Senate. We have a huge opportunity in 24. We have to win the presidency. We need to gain more seats in the House. We need to win statewide in a number of different elections. And we've got to do that with a strategy that, that really keeps the Democrats in check, maintains election integrity, 
keeps our boards of elections strong on the state level, making sure the federal government doesn't take over is what the Biden administration and the Department of Justice are trying to do. Make sure our state boards of elections are accountable to the people, are well-informed, trained, and have good laws where they can administer good elections. And Florida is an excellent example. And actually... Governor DeWine in the state of Ohio just made Ohio's laws even better, and the Democrats are melting down over that. That's amazing. And I'm talking with Congresswoman Claudia Tenney, and all of these things, you raise such great points when the Republican pundits and the conservatives come back and say, well, what about candidate quality matters? And they're looking at this as a reasonable, prudent person would and say, how could someone uh, like a John Fetterman actually get elected in the state of Pennsylvania? What's going on? That makes so much sense how Democrats are using the law and the tools that are available under the current legislation. legislative scheme. And if those things can't be changed, if they aren't changed, then Republicans need to change our ground game and understanding how uh, the system works. It would be like playing any sport and saying, well, I disagree with this rule being implemented. And so you just ignore the rule and you lose every time because, uh, yeah, we, you, because exactly. you're not playing and, the you game. Know, here's something that's good to, also important. In the state of New York in 2018, the Republicans uh, registered about uh, 5,000 voters. The Democrats registered over 100,000 voters. You know, I want to say something important about Florida, because Ron DeSantis not only is a great governor and, and, and had a command performance, good laws, they also had a very strong boots on the ground. And I want to give credit to the women's, uh, the Federation of Women Republicans and other women Republican groups and, and others, but a lot of these women were instrumental. They had a heels-on-the-ground movement that's been going on for years, where they continue to grow in registered voters. They got a little help from governors like Governor Cuomo and Governor Hochul and others who chased New Yorkers out of their state into Florida. But, but still, this is what it's aggressive, uh, getting people involved, getting them formed, getting them to understand that it's important to, to get new people on board as Republicans. And I'll tell you, my dad was a Republican chair uh, in upstate New York in just a, in a small county, and he was a guy from New Jersey, but he went around and he made sure that we as Republicans, he was a poor guy, and he sold and told our story to students all across our area and got people registered. And I still hear from people today that are in their 70s and 80s and said, if it weren't for your dad, I never would have been a Republican. So every one of us has got to go out and talk about prosperity, preserving our republic, making sure our children have good schools and common sense. Our, our parents have choices. There's a lot that we can do as average citizens. Other, you know, We have to vote, yes, but we have to get out and understand that this country is so important and so on the brink of being lost to the uh, to the, the far left, and they're communists. I live in a it communist is. country. It is, 100%. I know what it's like. and, and Congressman, I don't mean to cut you off. We are running uh, up against a hard break. Thank you so much for your efforts. Everyone, follow Congressman Claudia Tenney. See how you can get involved. We'll be right back with more of Jenna Ellis in the morning. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on this very happy Friday. And if you missed uh, Representative Claudia Tenney on in the first segment, wow, she had some amazing uh, perspectives and commentary about election integrity, what that Republican caucus is doing, the model legislation that they have been sending to states. And I would highly encourage you, if you missed that interview, go back and listen to that. Um, I had a few minutes just during the break to to speak with her and uh, to encourage her to continue that work. And she mentioned she will be coming on uh 
quite often to keep us updated on election integrity. And I know that for everyone who is listening out there with the uh, American Family Radio Network family, we are all concerned about election integrity. And I think that is uh, so far, at least in the two weeks I've been doing this show, has been uh, the number one topic that people have called in and asked, what can we do about election integrity? Very concerned about the vote and uh, very concerned with preserving our right to access the franchise. And so uh, with uh, Congresswoman Tenney's examples that she gave about why uh, not only does election integrity matter, but it matters that Republicans engage the process. I think that was the best and most salient takeaway point from that interview that we need to strive for because if your state that you are listening in allows things like uh, ballot harvesting or what my good friend Dinesh D'Souza now calls ballot trafficking, um, obviously conservatives don't like those particular tactics and we have uh, strived to make sure that it's one person, one vote who actually uh, shows up or they themselves put their ballot in the mail and um, not allowing this, uh, this more large political operation of these private organizations that go around and harvest. And obviously, if you have a a friend or a family member, it was really initially uh, the concept of ballot harvesting was designed so that you could help out a family member who uh, was maybe out of state, um, you know, for the full duration of, of the election when that was open or a sickly family member um, or someone like that who's elderly, you could help them get their ballot uh, ultimately to the poll. But like anything else, any rule that you put in place, politicians and political operatives will figure out how to manipulate it, right? And uh, and that in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. I mean, that's what lawyers do. Uh, on behalf of our clients, we try to figure out what is the best argument, how can we use according to the law, not bending it out of proportion, certainly not violating it. We're not talking about illegal conduct, but uh, what is the best argument and advice that we can give that is fully uh, functional within the construct of the law, but gives the best outcome for those that we represent. That's why you have the adversarial system in law. And it's the same way the adversarial system of politics, uh, when there are competing candidates, then these political operatives will look at the law and say, how can uh, we best use the rules to fit our preferred outcomes? I mean, it's no different than a sporting event. Um, Certainly any football coach or any baseball coach will look at the rule book and say, how can we play the game to best win? And, And that's what they should do. Now, when they cross over the line. If you have, you know, the whole inflate gate and all of that that happened a few years ago uh, in in the Super Bowl and so forth, then that gets into breaking the rules. And that conduct needs accountability. We need transparency for what actually happened. We need uh, instant replays. Wouldn't that be great if we had that and all the things that are available in the sporting world uh, to our elections? But this is why model legislation matters uh, to the states and uh, Congress. While we've talked talked about on this program before that uh, Congress doesn't have unlimited ability 
to regulate state-run elections. Um, and in fact, they have almost no authority over elections at all other than the time, place, and manner clause in the Constitution. They can, uh, through caucuses like this or through even um, national nonprofit organizations uh, like the Alliance Defending Freedom that does uh, model legislation on all kinds of various issues. They did model legislation for the um, protecting females in sports legislation that was passed by a number of conservative states. So model legislation can be derived from any organization or Congress that wants to send this legislation uh, to the floor in states and say, this is the model. This is what we would uh, like you in our best framework uh, to, to pass. And that's where you come in. And this is where so many people who ask me about election integrity, they're asking, why aren't you doing something? Or why, why isn't Congress? Or why isn't X person doing something? Well, at the end of the day, election integrity is your responsibility. It's my responsibility in my state and in my sphere of influence. And it's all of our responsibilities, not just to be concerned about it or to you know make phone calls complaining about it. What we need to do is be engaged and active citizens. And what you can do in your state is to contact Congresswoman Tenney, contact her caucus, ask for the model legislation, and walk that right down to your state capitol, to your elected representatives in your House and your Senate, and say, look at this. Why haven't you done what the state of Florida has? Why? What's your objection to this? I would like you to sponsor this bill. Don't change your word of it. It's model legislation. And I would like you to sponsor this bill. I will come and testify for it. And in fact, I will bring 10 of my friends and they'll each bring 10 of their friends and we will have a coalition for election integrity in that state. That's how things start. That is how movements are started. And so you can do a lot more than what uh, a lot of the mainstream media would tell you because there's kind of this um, almost... I think, offensive kind of blockade between the elitists and the uh, big media in Washington and what they think that you and I are capable of. And, you know, when I was first uh, in Washington and was first, uh, you know, was from Colorado and came to Washington and was totally you know, unknown practically to anybody um, other than the, the media appearances and the advocacy work that I had done um, in other organizations. But I wasn't known. I mean, I'm not part of the, um, you know, the elitist people in Washington. And so they said, well, you know, what do you know? What can you do? And that mentality is so offensive in the beltway to the concept of our system of government. And when I say offensive, I mean it offends or it is against, it is opposed to the, and it is fundamentally in conflict with our very foundation of our system of government. Because we, the people, are ultimately responsible for our system of government under God, we can't forget that we are still under our supreme rule of law, which is under the self-evident truth that God is the ultimate authority. So a lot of the more libertarian wing of the uh, Republican or the conservative uh, banner would like to tell you we the people are sovereign. Well, we have a, a measure of sovereignty, and we should talk about libertarianism um, at some point uh, when we have more time, because uh, libertarianism would suggest that we the people 
can do whatever we think in our collective judgment is best. And that offends the very notion of objective and fundamental truth. So we can't forget that. But we the people are sovereign to the extent that we in this country do not have anyone that is entitled to government power for any reason. It doesn't matter uh, whether their name is Trump or Clinton or DeSantis or whatever, or Bush, you know, anyone. They are not entitled to office based on their heritage. And they're also not entitled based on conquest. And historically, that would be conquest, like literal war and invasions of sovereignties uh, and the tyrants coming over. But here, the by conquest, uh, I think we can apply to election integrity issues and say that conquest is what the Democrats are really trying to do and manipulate these standards of the rule of law and say that they are entitled to public office because they know better than you and me. And so what we need to do is be engaged in active citizens and confront those false ideologies and say, no, this is still my country and I am still part of we the people. And in my state where my representatives are accountable to me and ultimately to God, then they need to listen to why election integrity is important. So I would encourage everyone, please contact uh, Congresswoman Tenney and then take that model legislation. Ask what you can do in your state uh, and be engaged in active citizens. And if you truly want to champion election integrity and you have as, as much of a concern as I do and what the Congresswoman does, and, and many other people across this great country have about election integrity, then you can not just do something, you can do the best thing for your state, which is to influence and impact how elections are administered, how there is accountability, how there is transparency, how there is process, how there is remedy if there is a violation of law. All of those things can be legislated on the state level. So uh, so that was a great interview with Congresswoman Tenney. Looking forward to having her back on the program. In the last few minutes we have in uh, this segment, I wanted to also comment on uh, the breaking news yesterday that the special counsel that uh, Merrick Garland appointed in the uh, Joe Biden probe, according to several members of Congress, including uh, Congressman Troy Niels, uh, he tweeted yesterday, the special counsel that AG Merrick Garland just appointed is none other than FBI Director Christopher Ray's former assistant. They're all in on it. That was his tweet. So whether or not this special counsel is actually independent and is an unbiased uh, arbiter uh, with the Department of Justice, that remains to be seen. I'm skeptical. I hope that you are skeptical as well. But this sets up a very interesting conundrum for the Department of Justice. And we've been talking about this uh, as this story continues to break, because now we have learned that the second location that the Biden documents were stored uh, was actually at his private residence in Delaware in a garage. That looks very different than the padlock and the classified area at Mar-a-Lago that just a few months ago, Joe Biden and the Democrats were saying was not appropriate to hold classified documents. Of course, President Trump has said and his legal team has said that the documents were not classified and that he had declassified them, but they were still stored in a much more secure facility than what these documents at the Delaware residence and also the uh, UPenn think tank office 
there in Pennsylvania. So uh, this raises the question, you know, what happens now? And um, these, the special counsel, his name is Robert Herr, and he was a former United States attorney uh, for the District of Maryland and uh, previously served as a principal associate deputy attorney general. Um, and, and so what happens now is that this probe, I think, will kind of go uh, one of a couple different directions. Um, either we will hear more about this in the news, the more that uh, the members of Congress on the Republican side are asking questions about it, or we will see a marked shift beginning either you know this Sunday, early next week, that something else will grasp the attention of the mainstream media. And remember, Remember that the mainstream media curates the news for you, and they tell you what they think is most important for you to pay attention to. That doesn't mean that we have to pay attention to it. We can ask questions, and we can look for information and sources on the topics that we care about. And so it'll be interesting to see whether whether or not this story gains momentum or now that the attorney general has come out and said that he's appointing the special counsel, that it will lose steam and something else bright and shiny that the mainstream media on both sides want to distract you with will uh, then take over the news cycle. So that'll be very interesting to see. I think that if um, something else takes over the news cycle, then uh, that will be an indicator that the Democrats don't want this probe to get mainstream media attention. They're concerned about that. They're wanting to protect Joe Biden. If this gains steam and the, uh, the, the Democrats continue to try to draw this parallel of suggesting that uh, Donald Trump still should uh, be indicted or prosecuted based on uh, the Mar-a-Lago documents and they somehow start correlating this to Joe Biden, I could absolutely see an instance where the Democrats are laying the foundation and paving the way for a removal or eventual resignation of Joe Biden because they don't want him to run in 2024. They want someone like Gavin Newsom, who is younger, uh, more popular and competent that they can control. Uh, They want him to run instead. And so this is a way to force out Joe Biden while simultaneously then under the pretext and the auspices of equity and fairness under the rule of law saying, all right, and then we're going to turn right around and say Donald Trump shouldn't run in 2024. And that's what I'm the most concerned about. And I'm very concerned that the the Republicans and the conservatives that are very quick to suggest that this was illegal conduct uh, on behalf of Joe Biden, and this is something that is um, either impeachment or indictment worthy, that those comments will come back to bite them when and if uh, Joe Biden either resigns or uh, something happens from the special counsel's office that then gets turned right around against Donald Trump. Because those same people have suggested throughout the whole Mar-a-Lago saga that Donald Trump did uh, nothing wrong. And the problem will be then differentiating those two scenarios with enough distinguishment to say that the rule of law should be applied differently. Now, of course, if there's different conduct and different action, then the law does apply differently because you have different facts. And that's true of the principle of the rule of law that uh, you have if you have different facts, then you have a different legal application. That's not against or a violation of the principle of equal protection. It's because you don't have two similarly situated individuals. But what uh, the problem becomes is if we have two similarly situated individuals and this is only turning 
on partisan politics, then we have a very, very bad scenario for Donald Trump. So I think that we all need to be very careful, take a step back and say, first, let's find out the facts, then find out the appropriate application of the rule of law. Then we can talk about the politics. We'll always talk about all of those things, finding out fact and truth right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. We'll be right back. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, to close out our week here on Friday, I wanted to take a little bit of a different turn into a substantive biblical topic, because as we've been uh, focused on so many issues going on in Washington, things in the culture and uh, things that we see and confront every day, it all comes back to prayer and beseeching the Lord to intervene in our society and move on the hearts of these elected officials in government who are making decisions daily that impact our lives. And so the power of prayer, as we see from the truth of the Bible, is that we are called as Christians to pray. And uh, my good friend and my parents' good friends, uh, Ronnie Rogers, has written a book called If Only You Would Ask, Praying God's Conditional Promises. And so Ronnie joins me now. And, you know, Ronnie, the um, the subtitle to this book is A Must Read for Anyone Curious, Confused, or Convinced About Calvinism's Mistaken Determinism. So that really sets up the question. I know you've written extensively on some of the doctrines of Calvinism and determinism, but in the terms uh, of prayer, why is this so important to understand how our prayers are truly effectual? Well, uh, thank you, Jennifer, for having me on. Uh, God has uh, made some things that are determined, they're predestined, but he's made other things uh, that he allows people's choices to affect outcomes. So we see this from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It just permeates all of the Scripture, whether it's salvation or Adam naming the animals in Genesis 1 and different situations that happen. But on prayer, particularly, uh, he has made conditional promises, and a number of them, and they they kind of go like this. Uh, if you will ask, I will do it. Or James says, you have not because you ask not. And so the condition is that we ask, and the the response is that he will do what we ask. Now, these are there are some limitations to that, but they're, but they're very very expansive. They cover a, a globe of of things and events that will change. So, he makes it clear that if we pray and ask, some things will turn out different than they would have if we did not pray. So, conditional is that you or I can choose to pray and ask, or we can choose not to. But in Calvinism, and it is very hard for people to grasp this because of a number of reasons, but everything is predetermined. That means if you just moved your finger, or every word I'm saying, or whatever your listener thinks about those words, or if they even decided to tune in, or if they just got a cup of coffee, it doesn't matter. The molecules, everything is predetermined. So conditional promises make no sense in the Bible, and specifically with prayer, because he says, if you ask, I will do this. Well, those under Calvinism who do ask were predetermined to ask. 
and those who do not ask were predetermined not to ask. But the Bible gives every evidence and just normal reading that anyone can choose to ask or choose not to ask. They can choose to obey or not obey, believe or not believe. So James, for example, says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Well, it looks like that any believer can ask and God will give them wisdom. But under Calvinism, only those that are determined to ask can ask, and those that are determined not to ask cannot ask. So so determinism uh, just really makes every uh, conditional in the Scripture, and particularly with prayer, meaningless. It, it looks like you can ask, and everyone can, and God will respond, but it's only for those who are determined. But in my view, everything's not determined. These are truly conditional. And so God will answer them, and, and there's two reasons that he gives in uh, John uh, 14 and 16. One is that the Father would be glorified, and the other is that our joy would be made full. And so regarding prayer, when you pray and God answers those prayers for you, it does give you a life of joy in the midst of whatever trauma is going on because you're seeing and experiencing that intimate relationship regularly. And that's why it's important to pray not just for the big things but the little things. So I, I just simply say, if you think about it, pray about it. And that makes so much sense, and that is a, a wonderfully biblically and logically based argument. And I'm talking with Ronnie Rogers, who is the uh, author of the book, If Only You Would Ask, Praying God's Conditional Promises. And you know, as I went through law school, Ronnie, uh, a lot of these legal terms that are in the Bible became so much more rich to me, and my faith uh, was made fuller by understanding and applying um, some of the legal principles and, and logic and understanding to how the Bible describes things like conditional promises. Uh, that's a legal term as well. And as you're describing uh, this principle of saying if it's not really a, a promise, it's just an illusion. And the law also has a description for that as an illusory promise. And that's actually a method of fraud in contract law to say that if you hold out a promise as a promise as a promisor, that you are suggesting something that you know is a false assertion that that is an illusory promise then that you are actually committing fraudulent conduct and and applying that same principle and that same logic uh, to God, we know that he is faithful to tell us the truth and to fulfill his promises. And so your argument makes a lot of sense in in, in the fact that the Bible does very clearly describe the if-then, which is the condition and the condition precedent. And so when, um, when you're talking about this with friends of yours who buy into uh, this kind of determinism, what is their rationale for prayer? Because if we don't have a choice and we are simply acting on what has already been predetermined, then what would be the point of praying? Because God would do what he was already going to do anyway, regardless of of whether or not uh, we even engaged in that. And we didn't even have a choice to begin with. Well, there's three basic views on why there is prayer. One of them is just 
uh, for fellowship with God and so forth, and I think that does apply, but some make it just for that, and there's really not uh, much emphasis upon changing events. The second is that prayer is to change us, not God. Now, that would be more of a Calvinistic perspective. And so the emphasis there is that we're changing to his will, so when we ask something, it is something he's changed us to ask, and we ask. So he's just doing his will already, but our our asking originated from him through us. So it's a determined thing, and, this, and you'll, you'll see this often either from a Calvinist or someone who's been unwittingly influenced by Calvinism, and that is when it says, you know, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it, or, you know, uh, uh, God hears your prayers and you have your request when you ask. They'll say, well, now that doesn't mean it, everything, and, and I agree with that. However, you still have to come back and say, yeah, but what does it mean? Because it really means an enormous amount once you get into the text and so forth. So then the third uh, view is that God does use prayer to change us, and part of that changing is he answers prayer requests that change events, and part of that experience is a greater intimacy and growing faith in Him. So even when He answers small prayer requests, it builds our faith, it builds our intimacy, just like if you have a mate or a friend and you talk to them and you ask them to do things, and they do them. Some of them are big, they mean a lot, but doing a lot of little things enhances your relationship, too. And this is all about relationship. So you will see them, and I deal with them, and I, I simply ask the question throughout the book, does this passage look like, appear like, that everything is determined? And if it doesn't, then Calvinism is really, it makes all of these things nonsensical. So they, they try to say that prayer is about changing us, or God has determined the means to the end. So again, when you're praying, you are determined to pray. But changing events, they, don't, they would not ever allow, and yet that's what you see over and over in the Scripture. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And I'm talking with Ronnie Rogers, who is the author of the book, If Only You Would Ask, Praying God's Conditional Promises, and talking about the efficacy of prayer, which uh, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, wrestled with this uh, whole contemplation as well in one of his most famous essays about the efficacy of prayer. And it, it would seem that if the Calvinist perspective was right and prayer was simply to change us and mold us more according to uh, God's will and in our process of sanctification. And we were uh, still convinced, which I think every Christian would agree in the inerrancy and sufficiency of the word of God, then why would God not simply tell us that in the Bible and say, you are praying because I've designed you to do this. And so you will have as Christians the um, the urge or the desire to pray and through prayer, I will make you uh, more into my image. Why would it be then a conditional promise uh, in the structure of, of how the Bible describes it, if that's not really what it is? Well, that that's the great question. Uh, throughout the Scripture, and I mean, again, we can begin in Genesis chapter 2, there were certain things that were determined. God put them in a garden, not a forest. 
he put a tree, a certain tree, and he made that the tree they couldn't eat, Adam couldn't eat from. He decided what animals would be there, but then he said, you name them. So what you have throughout the Bible is a mixture of certain things God has determined and certain things that he has allowed, they are, they are uh, uh, not determined events that man's free will plays a part in. So Adam actually, that's the first act of Adam exercising his free will. You find that all the time. So like with Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20, the short story is uh, Abraham had lied, Sarah wasn't his wife, so Abimelech took her into his harem, and then God came, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, you took a married woman, and he said, I didn't know she was married, and he he was telling the truth, and his integrity was in place. He wasn't innocent, because to take her into a harem, he had other ideas, but what God said at the end of that, in verse 6, is, you give her back, Abraham will pray for you, and you will live. So you see the condition there, and he conditioned it on Abraham praying, but Abraham praying was conditioned on Abimelech giving it back, and that was in the middle of of the scenario where God had said, and I kept you from, uh, you know, hurting her. So there was determinism, there was free will, there was conditions, and when they're met, then there's a benefit. And so we find this throughout the Scripture that, if you do this, I'll bless you, and if you don't, I'll curse you, or I won't, or you'll be judged, or you won't be saved. And so they just make all of those things determine, which really, it, it makes it look kind of like God's misleading us, like with Mark uh, chapter 9, where Jesus and the rich young ruler, and, you know, he offered him salvation. The, the uh, rich young ruler said, what must I do to be saved? That was a genuine question. So we expect a genuine answer from Jesus, and that is you do this and this and this. And, of course, he thought he had done those things, but he walked away, so apparently he's not saved, and he, in Calvinism he wouldn't be one of the elect. But the troubling thing with Mark's narrative of that is it says Jesus loved him. And that is the word agape that we use for salvific love. And so would Jesus be offering him salvation if he wasn't one of the elect and true and he truly could he truly love him at that time? And sometimes they'll come back and say, Well, as a human he didn't know. But the problem with that is mm-hmm. Jesus said he only spoke the words of the Father. He only did the will of the Father, and the Father did know. Right. whether he was elect or not. So what you have is a it, it undermines the person of Christ and the person of God in when they get into that. Yeah, and it and it's it's like so many other uh policy or theological arguments that if you start with a faulty premise of interpretation, whether it's biblical text, it's a constitutional text or any other written document uh, that, and you know, and certainly I'm not comparing the two, but, uh, but then you build a doctrine around it and one example, and then you have to build out off of that and you get into trouble. And so then you end up undermining something that you do know and going against something that has already been evidenced in other passages just because you want the outcome of interpretation uh, in this specific instance. And, you know, as we've seen with determinism, there are self-evident truth uh, and examples in our daily lives, things that are um, intrinsic aspects of our humanity, like where we were born, 
what our mm-hmm. age is, uh, what our gender is. We would say that that's yeah. uh, self-evident. All of those things were predetermined by God, but what we do with our lives Uh, not only the choice of salvation, but also the choice to follow God. And as you're describing this, the choice to pray isn't determined. It's something that we have to respond to the Holy Spirit in our lives. And and Ronnie Rogers, we're already out of time, and I have so many more questions on this. I'd love to have you back again. Um, But thank you for your um, articulation of these very difficult theological concepts. And I would really encourage everyone listening to get this book, if only you would ask Praying God's Conditional Promises. And if you're someone who's maybe a, a Calvinist and you you know have some objections to this, read this and thoughtfully and prayerfully consider this because we always want to be thinking about the whole counsel of God and reviewing um, what we think and coming more in line with the scripture. So happy Friday. Have a wonderful weekend. And I will see you on Monday here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Thank you.